The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. The Pet Buzz gives you the latest 411 on everything pet related. Everything pet related. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. I'm pet friendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the ultimate in pet talk radio, where we want to help you take better care of your pets. This is our favorite feature of the year. This is our Kentucky Derby 145 special edition. And joining us today is Christine Moore, the featured milner of the Kentucky Derby. Her sophisticated yet explosive racing style has made her a favorite of well-dressed men women, celebrities, and athletes. Also joining us is Florida State Professor Catherine Mooney. She's making her first appearance on the Pet Buzz, and she is going to talk about African-Americans and derby history. You want to know how track surfaces affect the race, including the KY Derby? Our expert, Mickey Peterson, is here from the University of Kentucky to talk to us. But now let's kick off our show with journalist Steve Haskin talking about the contenders. The contenders. The contenders. Who cares about the contenders? I'm only interested in the long shots. <laughs> <laughs> That's a typical Steve. Steve is back, everybody. <laughs> so the Kentucky Derby stakes is claim is the most exciting two minutes in sports, right? But like most sports, you want to know about the athletes. I'm going to come out of the starting gate and ask you, Steve, what horses about the top three Kentucky Derby contenders? Well, if there are three, so some people think there are five and some people think there are ten. Right now, right on top is Omaha Beach. He would have to be considered the favorite, especially considering that Mike Smith, the preeminent rider in the country, chose him over the Santa Anita Derby winner. So you'd have to certainly consider him Number one, he's won his last two. He's improving dramatically. His speed ratings are going up every race. I think a lot of people are going to put Tacitus, the Wood Memorial winner, in the top three, trained by Bill Mott and owned by Judd Mont Farm. And this horse is just getting better and better. He's only had run four times, but he's made tremendous strides every race. The one horse who's won, uh, you know, two major stakes this year other than Omaha Beach. And then after that, listen, you could choose any one of the three Bob Baffert horses. Everybody knows Bob Baffert won the Triple Crown last year. So it's hard to pick three. How about if if you want three? How about Omaha Beach, Tacitus, and Bob Baffert? Bob Baffert, not Bob Baffert's (laughs) multiple horses, but Bob Baffert. Okay, so you brought it up because I was curious. I really wanted to hear your opinion. So can you opine about Jockey Mike Smith's decision about choosing Omaha Beach instead of Roadster to ride at the KY Derby? And also, how do you think uh, Flo, that Florent Giroux, is going to do on Roadster? Well, I I would say this definitely was the toughest decision any jockey has ever had to make for the Kentucky Derby. Because you got to remember, he chooses Omaha Beach over a Santa Anita Derby winner that has won both his starts this year, that is trained by Bob Baffert, who won the Triple Crown last year 
with a horse ridden by Mike Smith. Right. So, so he, he he's going off his uh, his breadwinner to ride a different horse. That tells you how much he thinks of Omaha Beach. Let's put it that way. So what do you think about Flo on Roadster? But what do you think about Flo on Roadster? He should fit him perfectly. You know, he's a very patient rider. He's, you know, obviously French. And the European riders, including the French, obviously, they have a tendency to wait. They don't rush horses. The best horses in Europe are horses that come from off the pace, not on the lead. And uh, Florent Giroux is one of the more patient riders. He's had success with Bob Baffert before. He's also had success with the with the, with one of the uh, owners of Roadster as well. And the, I think I think actually he was the owner that had made a very strong suggestion to use him. But he should fit him well because Roadster now will come from behind horse, and um, that's the way Florent Giroux likes to ride. See, you know anybody that follows horse racing knows there's always a pace setter for each race. Who's that going to be this year for the Derby? Well, obviously, the ideal scenario would be for one horse to get out there and set a leisurely pace. Usually, the Derby is a very contentious race up front, but there isn't any pure speed horses. And they usually aren't anymore since they started with the point system and got rid of all the, uh, the sprinters. The horse that really likes to go out there on the lead and set a, a leisurely pace is, is Maximum Security, who did that in the Florida Derby. Now, he can come off the pace. I mean, he, he, he did it once, but he's more comfortable on the lead and setting a pace. No pace setter wants to have pressure. Vacoma's got speed. Omaha Beach has got early speed. They're not going to let him get too far away. But I'm looking for, for maximum security. If they let him go, uh, he'll go out there and try to duplicate what he did in the Florida Derby. And he's the wild card in this race because he's the horse that nobody can figure out. He's undefeated in four starts. He's won his races by an average margin of nine and a half lengths. And his first start, he ran in a $16,000 claiming race. I mean, that's a story into itself, how he wound up doing that. And he's also owned by the same people that own Game Winner, who was the three-year-old champion. So they have two horses. So they would love to see him get out there. Interesting. Interesting. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with journalist Steve Haskin about the Derby Dozens. Steve, of the two Bob Baffett horses, Improbable and Game Winner, which horse do you think will take the top spot or do better? <laughs> Both of them obviously uh, are capable of, as is Baffert's other horse, Roadster. But I would have to lean more towards Game Winner. He's more a professional of, of the two horses. He has a better pedigree. I'm more confident with him going a mile and a quarter. Uh, he does nothing wrong in a race. Improbable still has a few quirks. He acted up in the gate in his last start. He had the tendency to cock his head to the outside, which you, you don't like to see because horses lose focus. Bob Baffert put blinkers on him in his last start. He took him off for this time, so he's, you know, he keeps having equipment changes. So I think improbable is he's the more brilliant of the two, but game winner is the more professional and could probably withstand the, um, the atmosphere of the derby and the impact of, uh, of a 20 horse field. A little bit more. So uh, with that and pedigree and the fact that he has such a great two-year-old foundation and he's such, such a tough horse, I would have to lean towards the game winner slightly, but definitely lean in that direction. You know, early on, there was some scuttlebutt talk about trainer Todd Pletcher's cutting humor as a long shot. What's your thoughts? Well, I don't know where you heard that <laughs> scuttlebutt. <laughs> Uh, Denning, one of my Denning. Uh, but, uh, read. I read. Uh, Denning. He, he, 
he's a, I mean, he, he, he's a nice horse, but, you know, he's going to be a big, big price. He, he looked good winning the Sunland Derby, but it's, you know, that's out in New Mexico, and he really didn't beat a heck of a lot in there. But he ran very fast, and he is improving. Uh, there are other long shots I like better, but, you know, you always have to re- respect Todd Fletcher. Now, you got to remember, Todd, uh, John Velasquez, who's Todd Fletcher's main rider, had his choice of three horses, Code of Honor, who's trained by Chuck McGahee, Spinoff, who's trained by Todd Fletcher, who is a little more highly thought of, and Cutting Humor. The Cutting Humor would be the third of the uh, John Velasquez's horses, and he chose Code of Honor. But if, if I was looking for a Todd Fletcher long shot, I would be more inclined to look at Spinoff. I just think he's more of a talented horse. He can never say, and none of these horses have a chance. I mean, Cutting Humor is improving. Um, I go by thoroughgraph numbers. He ran a good thoroughgraph number uh, three races back, and then he uh, he ran a poor one two races back, and then came back and ran a good one. So you don't know what direction he's going to go in. Is he going to revert back to a bad one, or is he going to improve off of his last one? That's the big question. But um, if you like his name and you're looking for a Todd Fletcher horse, and you're looking for a horse who's going to be at least 30 to 1 in the race, then, you know, you might get a run for your money. But there are other long shots that I would prefer over him. Okay, last question. Who's your favorite for the win and why? <laughs> are you an Omaha Beach man all the way? Well, I mean, I've been an Omaha Beach fan uh, when he finished second in a maiden race. And I wrote him up big time. And then when he broke his maiden, I ranked him number six with, in the Derby Dozen, which is very unusual. I don't put maiden winners in the top 12 usually i wait until they face winners i was so impressed with his maiden win that i put him very high up number six and as soon as he won the rebel i I put him number one and i've had him number one since so i'm not going to go off him now from a betting angle i don't bet favorites i mean you can bet him in the in the uh trifectas or the superfectas um but i tend to like to look for the long shots but if I had to put one horse on top right now, it's the horse I do have on top, and I've had him on top for about five weeks now. So yes, it would be uh, it would be Omaha Beach, especially with Mike Smith choosing him. Well, great, well, that was great. We know yeah. how to get to the betting window. <laughs> well, we're going to encourage you to listen to Steve, listen to this interview two or three times, and then go run to the betting window at Churchill Downs or wherever you're going to be betting. You bet. Yeah. Very you clever. bet. That you was bet. clever. Yes, yeah, thank you're you. You're very Thank clever, you. Dr. Fleck. That sometimes Dr. Fleck <laughs> is clever. But I got to tell you, everybody, he can't pick a horse to save his life. Oh, my gosh. None of us can. It sounds good when I say it, but that doesn't materialize. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that new gambling series. Did you see that on one of the shows? I think HBO, that gambling series. Yeah. They had this one guy walking around talking about how much money he made. And then when he sh- they actually had to do some football picks. He was a loser. He, he ever, lost a, he lot, lost that a day. lot of money, at, like for a week or so. He couldn't pick one football game. Uh, that's what gambling's all about. And mm-hmm. uh, and listen, the Kentucky Derby will humble anyone. And uh, you always remember when you're betting horses, there's an old saying: it takes a horse to make a person look like an ass. <laughs> and let's end on that note. It has done that to me many times, Steve. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. Give us the website where we can read your Derby Dozen column. It's uh, Bloodhorse, B-L-O-O-D-H-O-R-S-E dot com. The Derby Dozen is on there on the features every week. And then when the Derby's over, yeah, I still have my uh, column that's uh, that comes up usually once a week, sometimes 
a lot more. You know what I'm thinking? Let's just have Steve come back for the Preakness and the Belmont. We're just going to do that, Steve. We'll just have you back for the Preakness and the Belmont. We don't need anybody else. We'll just need Steve. Heck yeah. I think that's the well, way to let's go. See who wins the, let's see who wins the Derby. You might, you, you might not want me after that. No, well, it's fine. Well, we'll see if we want you for next year. Yeah. <laughs> Now we, we'll have you back. We, it'll be great because we can just have like, you know, you'll be our, you know, you'll have the blood horse and then you'll have the pet bus, you know? Sure. Yeah. That's so, I mean, you know, hey, there you go. that's great. Well, that was Steve Haskin, horse racing journalist and overall nice guy, <laughs> our go-to to talk about the contenders, talking about KY Derby 145. We want to know what the one essential thing you need is for the Derby. So we're going to be back with Christine Moore, who's going to tell us. Stay tuned. When your doctor recommended omega fatty acids as a daily supplement, he told you that they promoted better heart, brain, skin, joint, and immune system health. Well, doesn't it make sense for your pet to have the same health benefits? EpiPet Whole Fish Treat, an all-natural smoked fish supplement, is 100% bioavailable, bringing your pets the nutrients they need to keep them healthy and happy. To order better pet health for your dog or cat, visit www.epi-pet.com. They're off in the Kentucky Derby. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pet Buzz this morning. This show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We enjoy being with you today because this is May 4th. Talking KY Derby 145. And the story of Kentucky Derby hats, the wide brim straw fashion statements that ride into Churchill Downs each year atop of the heads of well heeled spectators, is a contributing factor of the transformation of American racing from immortality and vice, such as gambling and drinking, to venues that might attract a wealthier, more noble set. Well, and joining us today to talk about the Derby Topper is famed designer Christine Moore, who's the featured Milner of the 145th Kentucky Derby presented by Woodford Reserve. This is the second year that Moore, also the official Milner of America's Best Racing, has served as the Derby's featured Milner. I can't not mention that her fashions are also in the Kentucky Derby Museum. Fantastic. Last year, and she did Kentucky Derby Barbie. I got to get one of those. I don't I got to go online and eBay because I just so I can say. Maybe this year. Yeah, I'm going to look. I don't know. I can't look today. But anyway, so last year she was the first featured Milner in Derby history. Moore has many collections, but is best known for her sophisticated yet explosive racing style. Known for comfort and attention to detail, her designs are highly popular among racing and Kentucky Derby fans. She has created hats for celebrities that include Kate Upton, Mary J. Blige, Jewel, Katy Perry, Jennifer Lopez, and the Today Show Dylan Dreyer and Al Roker, as well as the Pet Buzz veterinarian Dr. <laughs> Fleck and me, Pet Trendologist Charlotte Reed. Yes, those celebrities, yes. Good morning, Christine, and welcome back to the show. I'm happy to be back. It's so exciting to have you back on our show. The year goes so fast. Oh, my God. Doesn't it does. It, though? it really does. Well, I'm lucky enough to ask you the first question. So, mm-hmm. is the philosophy... Bigger is better applied to the hats of the Kentucky Derby? Absolutely. That is the style of the Kentucky Derby. Every racetrack has a different, every event that we do has a a different feeling to it. And I would say the number one thing about the Kentucky Derby is that there's something 
over the top about what's on your head. It could be the explosive color. It could be the size, you know, huge trim. It could be anything. Go big or go home. Could be the longest feather in the world. <laughs> you know, it's got, but you want something that's big. But the style of the Kentucky Derby is, is elegant and it's Southern Belle. So that you have to keep within that. Um, you know, you, it's not comical. It's serious fashion. Okay, tell that to some of the guys who wear those crazy suits who get photographed really early in the day. Okay, so, colorful. So while we had women wearing crazy things, and then men have taken on the fashion, and they're going through like what the women have already learned over the years for the regeneration of racing is that you know it, it's really about the elegance. But yeah, we have some. The men haven't learned that one yet. You know what? Actually, it's funny because at Christmas time on a show in Vegas, I wore one of those suitmeister suits. You know, those men suitmeister, the ones that have the Santa Claus oh, yes. on them. And Michael thought mm-hmm. I was so crazy when I showed up at the station because it's Vegas. You know, I could get away with that in Vegas. So when I showed up, I couldn't get away with that in Washington, but I got away with it. In Vegas. They loved it. They thought it was great. I put a Santa hat on. You know what I mean? I guess that's all it counts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of fun for Christmas. I'm thinking like me and Suitmeister. Okay, so I I might even look because, you know, it's like I'm thinking I'm going to I think I'm going to I told Blake I was going to go rogue a little bit. I don't I don't feel like dressing up, but, you know, it's early in the day. I might change my mind. Okay, so what's hot in women's hats or should I say hot in women's hats? And talk about the styles Um, and the color palettes. Okay, styles, uh, I do see a resurgence of uh, broad brim for sure. More people, they're loving our combination of horsehair with the parasitol for sure. Like that's been very strong. And then the other thing is to go smaller, which is a fascinator. And that follows with like the, the royal wedding that happened last year. And that happened after Derby. And I really, our, our fascinator sales were down until... Preakness, which was the same day as the royal wedding, and then it's been pretty strong. Fascinators have been pretty strong ever since, and now we're seeing, like, you know, a year later, the Kentucky Derby is two weeks before the anniversary of Meghan and Harry's wedding, and now definitely people want to wear the Fascinators in, like, more cleanly, let's say, more English style, like, um, less frou-frou, but that, ha- that can very speak sleek. a lot, too. Very sleek and statement-oriented. Yes. Right, exactly. So it's like you can make a statement going, you can make a big statement going big, or you can make a big statement going very, very clean and streamlined. You know, but it's a again, it's back to what we were saying before. It's all about making a statement. Got to make that statement. Got to get photographed. Yes, exactly. And I always say, yeah, once you get there and um, the the cameras stop you and people are admiring you. I mean, it's like you it's like it invigorates you for the day you know and and once you get your first compliment you know you're like it's out you're you're on for the the races well if you've just joined us we're talking about with milner extraordinaire christine moore (laughs) now this is a question for the gals should you buy the hat first or the dress first when attending the ky derby or any other racing event question yeah well i think that uh we can design either way obviously um there's one thing I like to get into, like get to know somebody and get into their personality before I design. So when I have a dress, I have a feeling of where they want to go with it. So that's good. That kind of gives me some indication right away, a little bit about their personality and, and the direction. But there's also a confidence issue where I think if the person has their dress, it's just easier for them because if I design a hat first and they say, and there are people who just have their dress made or they are confident they don't have fit issues. But if you have fit issues, 
you have to find the right colors, you have to find the right style and the right fit. And I think that's harder to do than for me to design a hat specifically for you or find something in our collection that would work. Okay, so you got a buyer. What do they have to think about when buying a hat? I think it's kind of like where are you going to be sitting? I think that's the one thing that I ask. Like, where are you going to be? Who is the crowd around you? So I want to find the right hat for the people that are going to be around them and then also for their own personality and trying to figure out, like, this is a good style. You know, this is good. if you're going to be on the third floor and you're going to be in the Louisville people and you've got, you know, six people sitting in your box, well, you know, maybe you want to go with a medium brim or a smaller brim if you know that your friend's going to wear a wider brim. But then if you're up on Million Hours Row, you actually have more space. So, you know, you can go larger. What if you're in the infield? I mean, let's talk the $50 ticket. Or the ticket. grandstand. Yeah. No, I want to talk about the $50 <laughs> ticket. Like, what should well, I wear? I, think the fit, I don't know what, I don't, I hate to say this, but I've only walked through the infield, so I don't, or I can see them from the millionaires row. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> down on them. I, that's terrible. That's okay. I mean, that's, that's it. Um, I, I, you know, and I've seen them looking very happy in, in nice weather and just drenched and with tarps all over the infield in rainy weather like last year. Um, you know, a lot of people just get a walk-around ticket and they just can stay in the paddock area. And if you stay in the paddock area, you're you, the, you that's really a showcase area So you for the horses and for people. So if you were to stay in that area, you get photographed a lot. There's a lot of press there. It's really where you can show off. I think if I were going to get a walk-around ticket, like a $50 ticket, that's where I would stay, not necessarily go over to the infield. Um, so I don't actually know really a lot about the infield. It's just there. So I think it's a walk-around ticket. Walk I don't know. Around. I'm going to find out because this year I'm going to go like low class. Just two different worlds. I mean, I'm not that low. I'm not low class, but I'm going to I'm gonna go for it. Dr. Flex like, yeah, right. Yeah. Wait till I hear get that. Wait till later on the afternoon when I call up and I'm like, yeah, I scalped a ticket. Okay. <laughs> so, but we, you didn't hear that. Okay. So you design hats. <laughs> you design hats for men too with a Dr. Flex credit card, of course. So, um, cause he'll be home practicing, working. And I'll be like, oh, Dr. Fleck, guess what? I found the greatest ticket. It was only X number of dollars. <laughs> he's like, he's like, yeah. he's trying to figure out, he's like thinking out which credit cards of mine does she have already? Okay. So talk about the men's hats really quickly. <laughs> yeah. The men are upping their game and, you know, they want to be valid fashion plates. <laughs> they want to, they want to play the game of the fashion too and the fun of it. And they definitely want, if they're a couple, they want to be part of the couple look. They want their wife to coordinate their tie with their the hat and the tie or, you know, just they want to look like a couple and they, they want to think their fashion out. Okay, so if you don't like your hat that you showed up with, you get to Louisville, you see all these people in the street at breakfast, yep. you see their outfit, you see a few hats, you kind of like freak out and you're like, oh no, my hat's not good enough. Go to the Omni. Go to the or the Roadster and Christine and her team will be there. And Blake, her husband, will be there. You can pick up something from the Blake collection, right? Now, I gotta yeah, tell right. you... Yeah, we have them at the Omni and Roads for Her. Yep. Okay, but here's and the him. catch. It's Roads for Her and him. Roads for Her and him. But here's the catch. You gotta make sure you bring that credit card with a big limit. Because you, you, you ain't getting right. no cheap hat. We make it start to finish from scratch. Which, you know, you can get a hat down there, but a lot of them are just like glued on quickies. 
at not like by I am I allowed to say this, Charlotte? Don't even worry about it. But you know what the best thing is? So have a big limit. You know, like I'm talking, I don't know, five, six and up, right? Is that what we're talking Mm -hmm. about? Yeah. So in other words, anywhere from like three, really three hundred to the average price, three hundred to seven hundred. Hey, you're going to the Derby. Get the best. Yeah, well, well, I say it's the best souvenir from the races is, is the hat that you wore. You know, and every time you see the hat or you pull out the hat or look at the hat, you know, you're, you think about that wonderful day you had. Here's the thing. And, you're not going to be wearing that hat again, maybe to church or somewhere else. But once you wear it to the Derby, like it goes on the collector's shelf. With the pictures. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's about, you know, it's Facebook. They put uh, on Facebook the great time. Their face is at the Derby, not their torso. So you don't want to cheap out on the hat because if you cheap out on the hat, it's like around your face. Yeah, cheap out on the shoes. That. Make sure they're comfortable and flat so you can oh, walk around. Sure. Cheap out yeah. on the, you know, you don't. You can go buy a dress at TJ Maxx that looks good, but just make sure you got that great hat. And no, I won't be wearing yeah. a dress from TJ Maxx. <laughs> I'll, I can I tell you right now. The one thing is that uh-huh. even if you've, it, Churchill flooring is, uh, I mean, all of it, it's amazingly hard. And so I think that's the other thing is like, you know, be realistic about your shoes. Yeah. Because, mm. you know, you can just walking across from like the entrance, like the gate entrance. To Dr. The paddock, Fleck knows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your feet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And men too. It's not just ladies. Well, no, it's I really bought these beautiful work. pink suede shoes mm-hmm. one year. Mm-hmm. And honestly, forget it. I mean, I couldn't even get, we got from the Barbaro statue, like halfway. And I couldn't even make it out of yeah. the paddock. I like had to put flip flops on. And you know what? I didn't feel bad because a lot of women were wearing flip-flops or the ones that were drunk already had no shoes on and were being dragged along. But on that note, we're going to let you go, Christine. So give us your you website. Before you leave, give us your website. It's C-A-M-H-A-T-S dot com and that's camhats dot com. That was Christine Moore, the featured Milner at the 145th Kentucky Derby. Later on in the show, we are talking about how track surfaces can affect the race. You want to stick around for that one, but find out more about the racemen, the African-American jockeys in Derby history. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, visit epi-pet.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. And I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed. And this is our special derby programming. African-American horsemen played a vital role in shaping early American turf history, and the Kentucky Derby is no exception. The history of the Kentucky Derby and African-American horsemen are really intertwined. The Derby and Churchill Downs holds a great deal to these men who helped shape America's greatest race. Thirteen of the 15 riders in the first derby were African-American, while African-American reinsmen won 15, 15 
of the Derby's first 28 runnings. And talking to us today about how African-American horsemen and the Derby history are intertwined is Florida State Professor Catherine Mooney. Professor Mooney or Ms. Mooney is interested in the cultural history of inequality in the United States and how it is imagined and made into political and legal discourse and how it plays out in people's daily lives. Her book, Race Horsemen, examines the generations of black men who worked with thoroughbred horses from the colonial period to the 1920s. Professor Mooney, welcome to the Pet Buzz. We're so glad you're joining us today. Thanks. I'm delighted to be with you. So I'm going to ask you a basic question because I was just curious. What motivated you to write a book about African-Americans and their struggle in the world of thoroughbred racing? Well, it starts with the fact that I grew up crazy about horses. And then I became an academic and I got really interested in African-American history. And I actually discovered this whole story of African-American horsemen, and I knew that it brought together these two things that I deeply cared about, and the book was born. Right. So early on, what roles did African-Americans fill in the world of thoroughbred racing, and how did they come to have their jobs or positions? Well, when we say early on, we mean really early on. So we're talking about before the American Revolution, the American colonial period, and the way they came to have their jobs was that horse racing was a very big deal in the South from the very beginning, from the 1600s on. And like most agricultural labor in the South, uh, working with thoroughbreds was the province of African-American men. And so they would, they were grooms. And then when they got to be a little older and a little more skilled at their jobs, some of them became jockeys. And then as you grew older and you maybe couldn't uh, you know, make the weight, uh, you became a trainer or a breeding supervisor or any number of the other specialized jobs that we associate now with horse racing. And many of these African-Americans, especially in the South, they were slaves, correct? That is correct. Until the end of the Civil War, the vast, vast majority of African-American men who work in the racing industry are enslaved. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the first Kentucky Derby and the winning team? Because, you know, it's really interesting, although maybe in the last 10 years we had the NAACP and the Kentucky Derby honor some of these very uh, early on African-American uh, horsemen. People still really don't know the story. And it's so interesting that as the day goes on, you know, and I'm at the Kentucky Derby, there really are so few African-Americans here at Churchill Downs and even more, and even as a whole, horse lovers don't really know that story. Well, the first Kentucky Derby is in 1875, and it's won by Aristides, who was not supposed to win. He was actually sharing an entry with the horse that his owner actually wanted to win, but he was actually just too good, and he went on to finish first. And the trainer in that case was a man named Ansel Williamson, who had been born a slave and by 1875 was actually a rather elderly man. And he was actually one of the men that I really focus on in my book because he was like a lot of the men of his generation in that he had been trained by other enslaved men to have this highly specialized specific job so that people in the antebellum South who were racing fans knew who he was. He was something of a celebrity, just like a lot of other very famous African-American horsemen at the time. And 
he had been trained by men who really did see their work as something that mattered to them and as something that in some cases helped to protect them and their families slightly from some of the horrible things that happened to other enslaved people. And so it was this set of skills that was very important to them to pass on to, to other young men. And Williamson, by 1875, when freedom has come, still is a very successful horse trainer, and he's still actually mentoring a lot of young men who were born in slavery but are now growing up in freedom. And he's now passing along those skills believing that this time, for the first time, because African Americans are free, they'll be able to use those skills not only for their own benefit, but to elevate their whole community. And one of his mentees was a young man named Oliver Lewis, who was, we believe, born a slave, an African American from Kentucky. And he was the jockey on the first derby winner. You know, as I'm listening to this, you realize how important the role of, for example, a slave who was able to be trained in a profession as compared to people who were just picking cotton. Because moving forward, after the Civil War, these men had professions that they could still work at, whereas... And special training. And special training. Whereas a lot of the slaves who were just picking cotton, that's all they could do. So I could see, as you're talking, how important these jobs were, these specialized roles were. And they were some of the only specialized roles that antebellum Southerners had sort of publicly acknowledged that slaves had Mm -hmm. and that they had sort of socially allowed for. So immediately after the war, these guys are actually some of the most famous former slaves there are. And what I began to realize looking at their lives was that they were really important role models for a lot of free African-Americans because they weren't. Well, you know, they weren't necessarily well-educated. They were kids who'd grown up on farms. They worked with animals, and they were very, very good at their jobs, and they did difficult, highly skilled jobs that were very important because they were what made the biggest board in America run. But they were still people that if you had grown up on a farm, you could hope to emulate, right? This is who you could grow up to be, right? You could be famous and successful, and you could help your family and help your community. Yeah, another area where we hope our show is going to help expose more of this for the general public and help those individuals. But tell us about the most celebrated African-American who won the Derby multiple times and what challenges did he face as a notable black man of means? The most famous black jockey is Isaac Murphy, who was born in slavery, but was really a tiny, tiny child when slavery ended. He was born on a farm in Lexington, Kentucky, and raised in Lexington, where he got a job as a very young child in a racing stable because his mother knew that she had a chronic illness and she wanted him to have that employment because she thought it would make him safe. And subsequently, he rode his first winner when he was 15 years old and weighed 85 pounds in 1875. <laughs> And he would go on to win the Kentucky Derby three times. Wow. Uh, he is, yeah, he is still the winningest jockey by percentage. His winning percentage is uh, considerably higher than either Eddie Arcaro's or Bill Shoemaker's. <sighs> and he was so good and so famous and was really such a celebrity, both for white people and for black people. So, for instance, when he and his wife remodeled their house, it made the front page of the New York Times, uh, that he was really at the height of his power and his celebrity 
in about 1890. And at that time, he began to sort of gain the notice of civil rights activists who weren't super into sports, but who recognized him as somebody that they saw as a very successful African-American in his field who had gained a lot of fan attention uh, and had actually white children, we know, actually would tell their parents, I want to grow up and I want to be Isaac Murphy. And I don't think that happens again with an African-American athlete, probably until Jackie Robinson. You know, one of the things that I was really surprised at, I really had no idea that there was an African-American who owned a winning derby horse. Yes. And that is uh, Dudley Allen, who owned Isaac Murphy's last derby winner in 1891, Kingman. And Dudley Allen is actually super interesting because before Dudley Allen was a horse trainer and horse owner, he was both the owner and trainer of the horse. Uh, he had served in uh, the Civil War as a black cavalryman. And we actually believe that he was at some of the more significant battles of the war. And I like to imagine, because Isaac Murphy's father was actually killed while in service to the Union Army, that he sort of saw Dudley Allen as a mentor like his own father, who had talked to him about the role that African-American troops had had, like the 54th Massachusetts, which is famous for the movie Glory, in helping to emancipate slaves. Hey, how did Jim Crow laws and Western European immigrants affect racing? Western European immigrants actually affect it much less than you might expect, because basically from the very beginning of major immigration, um, there are poor kids who are working in barns, right? That's always been the case. And immigrants and black folks work alongside each other basically without issue, as far as we can tell. I cannot find any evidence that there was a significant pay differential or, or segregation of any kind up until about the turn of the 20th century. So immigration isn't that big a deal. Jim Crow is really a big deal. And what happens with Jim Crow is really extraordinary because here you have this whole you know, multi-century history of black men who have been very successful in this sport. And in 1896, when Jim Crow becomes nationally sanctioned by the Supreme Court, you begin to get this pushback against African-American jockeys and trainers, not necessarily because they're successful, because that's sort of understood. That's a thing that's sort of evolved over history, but because it's increasingly clear to white fans and white audiences, and they're very vocal about this, that black communities are really embracing these guys and seeing them as sort of icons who can be role models and can really change the possibilities for black communities. And that begins to seem very dangerous. And that's when you begin to see, for instance, um, black jockeys who begin to have difficulty getting licenses and more informally, just, for instance, jockeys who can no longer make the weight, who in a previous period would have been given training jobs or other jobs in stables who don't get hired, uh, grooms who don't get a chance to ride. And what happens is sort of informal, really, the loss of jobs. And that really damages those networks that had existed since slavery that allowed African-American men to mentor each other. And that's probably why the last black man to win a Kentucky Derby was 1902. Wow. Unbelievable. It really is. You know, it's interesting because I would assume that the Irish coming off the boats, you know, on the ports on the East Coast and the Northeast would have definitely affected, you know, especially since many of them who came here were indoctrinated right away into the Civil War because they couldn't pay the fees. 
to not go to mm-hmm. war. So, well, that's interesting. I'm glad you clarified that myth. So my last question is, did Europe provide an opportunity or a haven to some of the jockeys who could no longer ride in the United States? And what happened to those who didn't cross the pond for opportunity? Europe is actually a really popular landing spot, uh, as it will be well into the 20th century. So, for instance, after Steve Cawthon rides the firm, he's going to end up in Britain uh, because the weights are a little higher in, in uh, Europe for a lot of the history of racing. But the main spot that African-American jockeys actually ended up was not just in Europe at the turn of the 20th century, but several of them actually went to Eastern Europe and to Russia. And because that that industry was really getting off the ground and they found that they really did not experience discrimination in the same way at all. And so a few of them are able to go. Uh, Jimmy Winkfield, who won the last Kentucky Derby, won by an African-American in 1902, uh, went to Russia in 1903. And he liked to say that uh, he first, actually, his first major outing was in Poland. And somebody asked him many years later what that had been like. And he said, well, they gave me a book so I could learn the language. And I wrote three winners the first day. And so the story of what happens in Eastern Europe is actually really successful for a lot of these guys. They were champions in those countries. And actually, subsequently, Wingfield will move to France, where he is a major trainer well up past the Second World War. But if you didn't leave, if you stayed in the United States, typically, while some African-Americans are able to hang on in racing staples and do continue to be to be successful, and really, I think, very honorably strive to uphold this history and to succeed, it becomes much more difficult to do that. And what I found that was desperately sad to me was the number of people that I had been tracing throughout their careers who ended up dying extremely young. And if they didn't die extremely young, having great difficulty finding jobs and seeming to be really beset by depression and anger and a sense that their whole lives had really been stolen from them by Jim Crow. That's so unfortunate. Gives you a lot to think about, doesn't it? It really does. Before you leave us, can you. You, can you please give us a website where we can learn more about you and buy your book, Racehorsemen, How Slavery and Freedom Were Made at the Racetrack? Amazon.com will be very glad to sell the book to you. Uh, and if you'd like to know more about the efforts that are underway, particularly in the Kentucky area, to showcase the history of these men, you can check out the Facebook page for Phoenix Rising, which is Lexington area group that is dedicated to really bringing attention to this history. Great. Well, everyone, that was Florida State Professor Catherine Mooney talking about African-Americans and their history in thoroughbred racing. I can't wait to read her book. Stick around. We're talking about how racetrack surfaces can affect horse racing wins and injuries. Expert Mickey Peterson is here with us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. They're off in the Kentucky Derby. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use The Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. 
I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Here at the Pet Buzz, we're urban, suburban, and country. country. You know, proper footing is imperative to keeping horses and riders safe, no matter what discipline they are competing in. And footing has been a growing focus for researchers and horse lovers around the world. So joining us today is Michael Mickey Peterson, Ph.D., the director of the University of Kentucky Ag Equine Programs. Dr. Peterson, a faculty member within UK's Biosystem and Agricultural Engineering Department, is deeply interested in footing and keeping competitors safe. Peterson is also the executive director of the Racing Surfaces Testing Laboratory, which he founded at Colorado State College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. He has been examining surfaces at racetracks and equestrian venues for more than a decade developing standards and protocols, and offering some recommendations on footing. Peterson is considered one of the world's experts in testing of competition surfaces, including dirt, turf, and synthetic. Impressive. (laughs) I know, it's worth it because he is so impressive. So, Professor Peterson, welcome to the Pet Buzz this morning. Thank you. First of all, can you discuss the different types of racetrack surfaces and what are the pros and cons of each? Well, there are three racetrack surfaces. There's the what, what's generally referred to as the dirt, which is the most common racing surface. The dirt surfaces are primarily sand. There's some silt and clay. There's some soil scientists who call it a soil, but it's, uh, it's a sandy soil. That's the most common. It represents now about 80%, 75% or 80% of the starts in North America. Turf, which tends to dominate racing, in Europe and many other countries is becoming increasingly important in North America. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for turf racing. A decade ago, it was only about 10% of the starts. It's now getting on close to 20% of the starts now are on turf. The most recent and most unusual surface then are the synthetic surfaces. They're a wax, fiber, and sand combination, and they're used at a number of tracks still in the United States. They've fallen somewhat out of favor, but they've been very successful at the tracks that use them. Interesting. So, especially since turf is really growing here in North America, could you tell us a little bit about how weather affects track surfaces? Because I think this is also important. I know coming up, uh, you know, since this is May 4th and we are heading out to the Kentucky Derby later this afternoon, uh, we always know weather is always predictable in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, weather in Louisville in uh, May is, uh, first Saturday in May is very predictable. It's always rainy, it seems like. The water is the single largest variable on both dirt and uh, turf surfaces. What will happen is uh, as you get uh, more water in the surface, the shear strength, meaning the friction between the sand grains is reduced, and uh, the hoof will go down further, and in turf, they'll oftentimes take them off the turf and put them on the dirt. Uh, just partly because it would be a very slow surface, and quite demanding for the horses, but also because it would do a lot of damage to the turf surface and potentially create a risk later on in the race meet. I thought it was really interesting, and I was preparing for this interview, that horses learn how to run effectively and safely on these tracks. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the horses have some ability to adapt to different surfaces, and we actually, we've spent a lot of years now doing a lot of measurements and we have a machine that replicates the front 
leading forelimb of a thoroughbred at a gallop has a, puts a lot of load on the horse, very a lot, a lot of load on the surface very quickly. And we from that, then we take a number of measurements. We've measured these on about 40 different racing and training surfaces in North America. What we see is we see very different surfaces. And a lot of it's geographical. You'll see the differences. Uh, different regions of the country will tend to have different surfaces, which really suggests that it's the horses are able to adapt to surfaces. And the key may be giving them time to adapt when they come to a new surface and also uh, having the surface that they're on very consistent, you know, step to step. They can certainly adapt when they ship to a new racetrack, but stride to stride, they're going to have a lot of difficulty adapting. So let's talk about Churchill Downs. What kind of track hosts the Kentucky Derby, and how could that affect the race? Churchill Downs has been interesting. They've been very engaged in our measurements uh, since 2007 and 2008. They uh, had an initiative at Churchill Downs to look at all the safety aspects for both horse and rider. And what's interesting is it's a very traditionally managed track, but, but we look at it and what stands out is how consistent it is. And I, I, I've mentioned consistency, and that's one of the things that uh, I, I say over and over. And it's not only consistent, but it also, because of the type of sand, recovers from moisture quite well. It seals, but it doesn't get too hard. So it really is an ideal surface for the Kentucky Derby because we're pretty confident it's going to rain. A couple years ago, we had a dry one, but, you know, it seems like the off, the, the unusual case when it's dry. Well, you know, as a veterinarian, I'm real interested in this one. Is there a correlation between the track surfaces and equine injuries? The problem we have right now is we don't have enough measurements day to day to do a good correlation. So basically saying, you know, dirt with a certain condition is uh, safer than other surfaces. What we do have is we have differences between surfaces. In the equine injury database, which covers the vast majority of flat starts and most jump starts as well in, in North America, uh, shows some pretty clear effects of racing surface on injury rates. The safest racing surfaces are synthetic. Uh, turf is second safest and the uh, least safe is dirt. One caveat with that, though, is a lot of trainers have express concerns that while the catastrophic injury rate, which is what the equine injury database traces, while the catastrophic injury rate is uh, lower, there's a lot of trainers who have speculated that their careers are actually shorter on synthetic because of other types of injuries. I can't answer that. We've never done the study to, to answer that question, and that's something that should be a priority is looking at that. But we're clearly seeing the effect of synthetic being safer. Science and horse racing. It's amazing, isn't it? It sure is. I've got one last question, and this is for all those uh, gamblers. You know, and the handicappers horse, yeah, out there. Here they are. Okay, so how does the track surfaces affect the odds in betting? There is the possibility to have a track bias, and if the track's drying out, that inside rail can sometimes be a little fast if it's still down, but uh, you know, it all, it's all the data, so Maybe at some point we'll be able to give good handicapping information for uh, for <laughs> for people if we keep this study going. Well, Dr. Mickey Peterson, thank you so much for joining us today. Before you go, can you give us a website where we can learn more about how equine racing tracks surfaces and your research? 
It's racing surfaces testing and it's rspl.org. That was Professor Michael Mickey Peterson, director of University of Kentucky, discussing track surfaces. Stay tuned and we'll be back in a buzzworthy moment, wrapping up our salute to the 145th Run for the Roses. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Warmer temperatures mean more time outside. You have sunscreen for yourself, but what about Fido? According to the American Animal Hospital Association and the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, pets need sunscreen too. Use EpiPet Sun Protector, the only FDA-approved pet sunscreen on short-haired, light-colored, hairless, golden retrievers, and other dogs susceptible to skin cancer. Contained in a sports bottle, EpiPet allows you to turn the bottle upside down, making it easier to spray your dog all over to protect your dog from the sun all day and every day. Visit epi-pet.com. They call me Prince like I'm royalty or something. But the places I've lived ain't no palaces. So I don't need grilled salmon or a new scratching post. Just give me a cardboard box and a can of tuna and we're good. You can even change my name. I'm cool being the kitty formerly known as Prince. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. We're back, and you're listening to the Pet Buzz with petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And veterinarian, Dr. Michael Fleck. That's the horn signifying it's time to wrap up the show. But Ooh, before what a great we show, go, absolutely. But before we go, we want to give you a preview for next week's show. Next week, we're talking about if animals have souls, Lyme disease, best Mother's Day gifts for pet owners, and be kind to animals week. And Dr. Fleck, we can't forget to thank our guests. Special thanks to our guests, Steve Haskin, Christine Moore, Catherine Mooney, and Mickey Peterson. Great. And we always want to thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. Now, if you have a question, write us at team at thepetbuzz.com. We'll cover it on next week's show. Just so you know, you can follow along on our social media channels as the show airs. Charlotte will be in Louisville for the Kentucky Derby 145th running. Check out our pictures on our social media channels. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. Most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. Visit our website at www.thepetbuzz.com. Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.